Thank you for, for being a part of what we're doing this morning here, especially now that everything is online. I know that you've got tons of different options and different selections when it comes to being a part of either Saturday or Sunday morning service. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and being a part of that. It's a little bit hard to believe that this is actually the ninth week of our online-only services. Um, nine weeks we've been doing that. That's a, a really long time. Like It just feels like it's been forever. I, for one, am anxious and excited excited to be able to, to see you all once again and to be able to, to fellowship with one another. Um, however, I do know that with that June 4th date right now with, with the stay-at-home order kind of being extended until that time, not quite sure when that looks like or, or honestly, once that kind time does come, not sure what that looks like because it's going to be altered as we kind of are experiencing this new season of COVID-19, but I just do want to say thank you for joining us, really hoping and praying that in this season that you find yourself at home, and God is, what I'm hoping is that you experience God while you're at your home, and that though things are different, though things may be difficult and challenging, what I also hope that you're experiencing is that God is moving and working in your life. And uh, I will say that as a staff this past week at our weekly staff meeting, which is now all online like everybody else, uh, we have just been really impressed with you, uh, the church that has actually been going out and doing the church. Uh, for me personally, it's a little bit hard to, what does it mean to be the outreach pastor in the middle, middle of a pandemic? Um, because the majority of my work is actually assembling people to go out and do stuff, well, we can't assemble and we're not supposed to go out. So it's really challenging and confusing, uh, I'll say, for this season, but have really been impressed with you as the church, as you have reached out to neighbors, as you've reached out to uh, the community, as you've helped those in need, and how you've encouraged those in need. I just really want to say thank you to the church for what you're doing and how you're being the hands and feet. And I want to say keep it up. Keep going for it. Keep being the hands and feet and going for what God has for you. Um, I, I'm excited today as, like I said, we're kind of wrapping up our series on Philippians. This week is our fourth week. We've been taking kind of a chapter at a time. And while this isn't really a deep dive of Philippians, because there's so much that you could get, go into, um, what I really hope is that you're challenged and encouraged by this. And, and I want to jump into that and get to that in just a second. But before I do, I do have some news that I would like to share with you that's pretty exciting for Hope and myself. And uh, just indulge me for just one moment, if that's okay. Uh, I think some some of you may already know this, you might already be aware of this, but Hope and I are pretty excited to let you, our church family, know that on the, the 8th of April, uh, we actually received a foster placement of an awesome young lady. Her name is Tay. So uh, this is the indulging part. I promised Tay that I would actually give a shout out right now. So if, if you just don't mind, I'm going to go, what up, girl? How you doing, Tay? You didn't think I was going to do it, but I told you I was going to. What's up? And... For those of you that don't know me or don't know Tay, which is probably most of you, she's probably really embarrassed right now. It's going to be especially awkward when we sit down on Sunday to actually watch church and do church together, um, because I'll be sitting in the same room as she's in the room, but what's cool is that I get to watch her response. So what up, Tay? We're glad that you're part of Hope and I's life, and we are so proud of you and love you, girl. Even though it's only been about a month, we're so proud of you, and we're excited to do life with you. So thank you for indulging me. If you are just kind of like, who is this weird guy and what is he doing? 
that's just kind of me. So uh, uh, one other thing that I do want to say real quick before we jump into this is that if you haven't been using the resources that KidZone has been putting out, please take the time to do that. They have been working pretty hard to try and make sure that they are doing everything that they can to give you resources and to give you opportunities to help stay connected with your children and for your children to be able to stay connected with what we're talking about as a church and be able to, to grow in their faith. Um, Specifically on Fridays, Friday afternoon, what they are doing is at 1 o'clock and then at 3 o'clock. There's two different times they're posting. Um, but at 1 o'clock, what they're basically doing is to, to give you kind of a sneak peek. There's a video that they posted about 1 o'clock on Fridays that will give you a sneak peek of what the service will be like. And in that, it sounds like they do a lot of science experiments. They do some illustrations, um, things that are engaging. So that's something that you definitely want to check out. And you can check out their Facebook page by going to facebook.com slash CLC Kid Zone. That's all one word, C-L-C-K-I-D-Z-O-N-E. Uh, and you can find all that. And then at three o'clock, what they're doing is they're trying to give you some resources over the weekend for your kids to be able to join in and do with that. So it sounds like they've got ideas for worship. There's games, there's crafts, uh, there's a Bible discussion question, um, and it's all connected to this week's lesson. So every week they're trying to stay in the same kind of communication lane that we are so that you and your children can be able to have conversations at home and be able to hear what's going on. So uh, the last thing that they have or they had asked us to share, and we've mentioned this for the last couple weeks, is that during the Philippians series, they normally do the, um, it's called the Gospel Project uh, curriculum. That's usually what they, they use during this time, but for Philippians, as we went into this book, they didn't have quite the same resources, so the Kids Zone actually changed some of their resources, so we don't have a video for you to show during the service, but if you're interested in kind of learning Philippians with your children, if you go to Right Now Media, there is a show that we are suggesting that you can look up. It's called The Mr. Phil Show, and it's Philippians, Where Does Joy Come From? Uh, I previewed it myself as I was kind of preparing for this and just kind of getting an understanding of what's going on, and it looked pretty exciting, okay? I'm 34 years old, and I would probably sit down and watch it, so, but I'm also a big kid on the inside if you just saw my shout-out. that. You might not be surprised by that. So the Mr. Phil Show, Philippians, Where Does Joy Come From? That's found on Right Now Media. And if you don't have access to that, if you go to our website, clcfamily.church, scroll down to the bottom right side of that home page, you'll be able to sign up for Right Now Media completely free of charge. Great resource for you to have, especially during COVID. Tons of different Christian um, shows that your kids can watch. There's a lot of different programming, including small groups that you can get involved in right now. So I want to encourage you to do that. So like I said, I am pretty excited to be able to wrap up the Philippians series. Uh, week four, we're going to be focusing on chapter four this week, and there is a ton of stuff to go, go through as we do this. And, and I don't, I don't want to take up too much time because I know that we've got other things to do, and if I preach for an hour and a half, probably everybody's going to tune out. Um, so I, I don't want to take up too much time, but Philippians is kind of the, the book where we get tons of different Christian t-shirts, coffee mugs, bumper stickers, like this is the book that as we read through it, there is tons of like quotable scriptures. Some of those scriptures like Philippians 4.13, which we're going to get to today, is even maybe misquoted and misunderstood in some context, but this is kind of the coffee mug, the Christian coffee mug saying, like all of these verses have an impact on a believer's life, and I'm excited to be able to share with you today, and I, I do want to say 
If you are looking for a more in-depth study of the book of Philippians, I would highly, highly recommend a teaching a video series and book by Matt Chandler called To Live as Christ and to Die as Gain. It's a study that I've done. In fact, I'll be honest, some of this content comes directly from that study that I've done in that book. Um, really great in-depth look at Philippians chapter, or well, Philippians, the entire book, and it takes about 12 weeks for him to work through the entire series. There's a lot going on there, so I would highly encourage encourage you to, to jump into that. Maybe if you're looking for a small group discussion or a small group uh, curriculum, that would be a great one to go through. Some of the videos can be a little bit long, but I promise that they will actually be worth your time. So I've really enjoyed that study, and I hope that you can as well. So today, as we open up to uh, chapter 4 of Philippians, we have learned a lot in the last three weeks. Like, Philippians is one of the books of the Bible where Paul really kind of <laughs> he really kind of says the same thing almost over and over and over, but in different ways. Like he's communicating in such a way that his beloved and dear friends would understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is doing some serious um, expounding or, or talking about uh, this gospel and, and how it impacts and intersects within our lives. And so we've learned a lot during that, just kind of as a little bit of a recap. I want to read through some of the stuff that we've already heard and then jump in starting in verse 1. So Philippians is what we call a prison epistle. And what we mean by that is that Paul wrote this while he was either in prison or house arrest. There is some debate as to what time this book was actually written, whether he was actually in Rome in prison or if he was under house arrest in, in Caesarea. Um, and they're not really sure, but he is under arrest on some level, either house arrest or actually in prison. And in this book, one of the main themes that we see is Paul's continuation of coming back to joy, having joy in the midst of a difficult circumstance, or to rejoice in this, and to rejoice always. And so there's a lot going on in there, and Paul is writing to the Philippian church, and really the main reason why he's doing that is to thank them for the gift, for their generosity that they've brought him, and to update them about himself. There's a very close relationship between Paul and this Philippians church, and they've intersected several different times on, on Paul's missionary journeys, and as you read through this book, you can see the, the warmth and the love and, and the concern that the Philippians have for Paul, but also the, the caring nature that Paul has for this church in Philippi. And so what Paul is doing is he's encouraging the Philippians to press on in their relationship with Christ, to grow in their unity, in their humility, in their joy, and in their peace. They're reoccurring themes, and again, Paul kind of says the same thing throughout these four chapters, almost over and over, but in different ways. And so Philippians is unique in the sense that it was not written specifically to address church problems or conflicts, but it's one of gracious affection and appreciation. A lot of Paul's writings are going, hey, this shouldn't happen, or be careful of this, or do this. Paul, while that some of that is in this book, Paul is more doing this as a letter of thanks, like of gratitude and appreciation. And so from the beginning of the letter, the letter focuses on Christ as the purpose for living, the source of joy and hope for eternal life for all who follow him. And there are three minor problems at Philippi uh, that Paul discusses. It's uh, one, one of the things is a discouragement about his imprisonment. News has gotten back that he's in prison. Maybe they're disappointed because they're in prison longer than what he thought he would, but, but this is something that he begins to talk about. There's also a disunity between two women within the church, which we're going to address today. And then the third thing was the threat of these false teachers that were coming into the church. And so 
In connection with these three problems, we have Paul's richest teachings about three things. One, as already mentioned and will continue to be mentioned, joy in the middle of all of life's circumstances. Two, Christian humility and service. And then three, the supreme value of knowing Christ. And so with that kind of as a backdrop, and I think that it's important to give you an understanding of where we've been, because really as we start chapter four, chapter four starts with a word that says therefore. And you've probably heard this numerous times, but if whenever you see the word therefore in scripture, that's there for a reason because what Paul is actually going to do is because of everything that he has just said, he's going to kind of summarize by these next words that he says. So it's a summarization kind of statement. And so Philippians chapter 4, starting in verses 1, we're going to kind of take it one verse at a time mostly, but then we've got a couple double. Uh, But this is what it says. It says, therefore, my brothers, and this is a different translation that I'm using, ESV, but he's talking to both the the men and women at the church. Women were a pretty prominent figure in this Philippians church, and we'll get to that in a little bit. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And again, the first thing that you see right away when you see Philippians 1, 4, 1, is that there's a lot of language in here that is conveying his affection for the people and for the church at Philippi. And that's, that's unlike some of the other letters where you see it's more of a, a discipline or a, or a teaching or maybe scolding. Maybe that's too harsh of a word, but there's really a concern there. But this one, there's this affection and this joy in, in saying that he's who he loves and who he longs for. He says, my crown, my joy and my crown. And the, the idea there is that, and Paul's used this in other places in his writings, but the idea of if you're in a race, if you finish that race, one of the, the prizes was this crown that you would receive and wear on your head. He likens that prize to these people in Philippi, to this church in Philippi. And so he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And again, what he's talking about is in chapter 3. So kind of in light of all of that, therefore, because of all these things, in light of everything, not putting confidence in the flesh, in light of Paul's worldly accomplishments, not meaning anything compared to the knowledge of Christ, in light of pressing on towards the goal of knowing Christ, and in light of wanting to know the power of Christ's resurrection and sharing in his suffering, in light of all of this, the words he says are to stand firm. And that is, uh, I don't know, for me, that's not words that I generally use, like stand firm. And so that, it got me kind of looking at it and thinking about it. And as I'm studying through this passage, I'm going, why would he use the word stand firm? And it's interesting because what what he's kind of arguing is because of the priceless knowledge of Christ that he talked about in Philippians 3, the believer should stand firm or stay true to the Lord. And the imagery he uses here is like soldiers determined not to retreat whatever the forces against them may bring. And it's interesting as he uses that because Philippians was a very important city within the the Roman Empire. And so uh, Philippians is actually located in Macedonia, which is Greece. If you're like me, you just need to be reminded of that. So it's in Greece. And this is a very important city. In fact, when, when Paul traveled on his missionary journeys, what he would do is he would go to kind of epicenters, right? Like he would go to the prominent cities. He didn't want to stay on the outskirts. He wanted to, to proselytize to as many people as possible. And Philippi was one of those cities. 
And I can't help but speculate if maybe because of the military significance of the city, maybe Paul is using this vernacular or this verbiage that helps paint a picture that these people in Philippi would understand. Because uh, this is what I, I kind of came across as I was studying it. It said, The city of Philippi in eastern Macedonia was named after King Philip II of Macedon. He was the father of Alexander the Great. And in Paul's day, it was an honored Roman city and a military post. In fact, one of the, the things that I was reading actually mentioned that it was kind of like a mini Rome like Rome, but on a smaller scale, and it wasn't actually Rome because Rome was kind of the cradle of everything important, but it was actually led by two military officials. Um, let me, it was governed by two military officials that were appointed directly by Rome. So there was a very direct connection there, and it says that um, after the Romans conquered the city, Rome released some of its veteran soldiers to colonize, the, uh, to colonize the city. It was a significant military city that was colonized by, by soldiers. And so in that, this idea of standing firm is the idea of a soldier who's in battle and they are holding firm their position. And within the Roman army, the way that they would draw up their battle lines is that there was actually three separate lines. And the strongest line, the last line, that third line, was actually made up of the veteran or more elite soldiers, those that were more experienced in battle. And the idea is, is that they would, if all other lines failed, that they would not. And it was, it was not something that if there was an order given to to hold or to take this place or there was a commandment or a command that they were supposed to follow, then it was expected that they would follow that command until ordered something else or, in the case of battle, that they would be expected to die following that command. So they did not give up ground. They did not retreat. When it says stand firm, soldiers would understand that standing firm meant this is my area and I will not back down. So it's interesting as we look at that, that maybe Paul is using that, that important ven, uh, vernacular of that day. And, it, and, and Philippi, the east to west travel of the Roman Empire, it was actually a pretty key location for that east to west travel. So it was a very important, prominent military city that even maybe was founded or colonized by military men and women. And so when he gives this picture of standing firm or holding fast, it's a good possibility that the church in Philippi, those in Philippi, this church of Philippians, that they would understand what exactly that meant. To stand firm, to not retreat, to hold fast, that in the face of danger that they wouldn't shriek back or turn away, but they would actually be more resolved in their determination to get a hold of all that Jesus had for them. And so it's pretty fascinating if that would be the case. And we'll see another area that he kind of uses this military vernacular in a little bit. But continuing on, Philippians uh, 4, 2 and 3, it says this. I entreat, and I'm going to probably de destroy these names, but uh, Eudea and Synteche. He says, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Synteche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, and we're not quite sure who that true companion that he's addressing in verse 3 is. He says, help these women who have labor, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So what we see in this is that Paul mentions two very specific women by these very interesting Greek names. And 
this issue that has occurred is that there's some type of a dispute that is happening between them. We don't really know. In fact, as I have studied through it, I, I couldn't really find an answer. We're not sure what that dispute was. Um, but what we know is that it was important enough for Paul to address this in his letter, to specifically call these two women out, and then not only to call these two women out, but to call his friends who have labored with him, his fellow workers, people like Clement and this person that he's referring to as the true companion and his fellow workers to help them in kind of setting aside their disagreement. He said, I ask you, true companions, help these women who have labored by my side together. And he says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord, like to set aside their differences, to set aside whatever dispute is happening and to agree with one another in the Lord. And it's speculated that these two women are, are possibly even deaconesses of the church. And what we know through some of Paul's uh, formation of the church, some of his other literature where we see that there was prominent women within the church, is that Paul would have established women leaders within the church in a day and an age and a time where men were kind of the standard, right? Women weren't really considered good witnesses in court or, or able to do things. Paul said, no, 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 it's not about male or female. It's all about being one in Christ. And Paul had a different approach because of his relationship with Jesus and because of the elevation that Jesus was bringing to women, Paul also elevates women, specifically in Macedonia. When you think of uh, Greek mythology, women played a big part of Greek mythology. So specifically in Macedonia, what you would see is that there was women that were involved within that, that pagan worship as well. And so it would almost logically make sense that if women were, were in leadership positions in other areas, then of course within the early church of Philippi, that women would be in leadership positions as well. So it's possible that these two women with these Greek names were actually deaconesses of the church. And so maybe because of that, then the rest of the church saw this disagreement happening, and Paul is urging them to be unified, to set aside their differences, and to agree in the Lord. And those two names, because Philippi was a Roman colony, it's possible that they could indicate they were also foreign merchants like Lydia, and we haven't really talked about Lydia, but if you go back to Acts chapter 16, when this church in Philippi was being formed, Lydia was actually the first convert, and what we know of her is that she sell, sold purple um, garments. And that was a sign of, uh, of wealth, and so she was a merchant. Kind of the idea is like, think of a fashion designer. We'll say like Prada. Like Lydia was Prada back in Jesus' time. Maybe not exactly the same, but seller of purple linens, and they were, she was kind of an elite person that was in the center of the city that also conducted a lot of trade. And so she was a prominent figure, not even, not just in the church, but also in the area. And it's possible that these women were also prominent figures, both within the church and within the area, but there's speculation on that. And so he encourages these women to set aside their differences, to lay down their disagreement. And one of uh, the commentaries, the Life Application Concise New Testament Commentary, said this specifically about women in leadership and these two women. It says, These two women had worked hard with Paul in telling others the good news. In many of the churches Paul visited, men were the key players, but women played a key role in founding, uh, in founding the churches of Macedonia. And you can see that in Acts 16, uh, 16, 14, and 40, and then 17, 4, and 12. It says that Philippi, women were the first to hear the gospel, and Lydia was the first convert. 
those who were among the first to understand the gospel would be asked to teach. Thus, these two women were to take an active part in teaching. Their quarrel was highly visible and threatened to disrupt the unity of the church. But that also leads to kind of this idea, well, why would Paul actually care? Like, why, why does he care if everybody's getting along or not? And I think there's two reasons for that. One, I think a divided church is a terrible witness. I think that just when you see a church divided and there's backbiting and there's bickering and there's gossip and there's arguing and there's a refusal to, to kind of let go of your own personal just because you think you're right. That's not a very good witness to the rest of the world. But then the, also the other reason for wanting unity is that because in true unity produces joy. And again, we're going back to that main theme of what Paul is talking about. It's rejoicing. This man that is in prison in writing this letter, he is reminding the church of Philippi to rejoice and that unity actually brings true joy. While it may seem and appear that it's good and the backbiting is like you get what you want and you're maybe satisfied in that, it doesn't produce a lasting unity. And so Paul doesn't tell them to feel happy or to produce a false feeling, but to come to an agreement and then commands a very specific action as a logical response. And that brings us to Philippians 4.4 4, and it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And, uh, it's kind of interesting because he's talking to these two women, but then he returns to the church at large and he tells them to rejoice. And again, it's strange that this man that is in prison is encouraging the people to rejoice always. In fact, he says it twice. Like, it's so important that he doesn't just say it once. He goes, let me say it again, rejoice. Like, it's so important that he's going to make sure that if you weren't paying attention the first time, or maybe you didn't want to hear, that he's going to say it a second time. He emphasizes the importance of it to rejoice. And there's two critical components to Philippians 4.4. It's one, to rejoice. And then two is always. Rejoice always. And this is where it gets really challenging, right? Like this is where you start to go, okay, I can understand the significance and the importance of rejoicing, but always, mm, if you're anything like me, that seems a little bit unrealistic. Like too unrealistic to the point that I might be tempted to ignore that and to be able to just kind of continue on with the way that I want to do things because I don't think that's possible. Like, it just appears that that would be impossible to rejoice always because even now as I'm talking, you can fill in the scenario. You go, okay, rejoice always, but what about, and you can fill in the gap. And then you're going, surely you wouldn't expect somebody to rejoice and then you fill in the gap. <laughs> you just don't understand because my situation is, and there's no way that I could find myself rejoicing always. Yet, that is what exactly Paul is challenging this church in Philippi to do. To rejoice literally always. And that is so challenging and so hard to the level that it doesn't make sense. It almost seems like it's one of those churchy phrases that you've heard and people talk about and you just dismiss because you're going, dude, that's not at all real life. Or at least if you're like me, you've been around the block a few times, you've seen how life works, and that just doesn't seem possible at all. And Paul is encouraging, yes, that even then, even in the worst of circumstances, even in the worst of, of seasons, that you would rejoice always. And um, as I was thinking through this, um, I was thinking back to uh, 
August uh, 2018 for my wife and I was a very exciting time for us. Um, we had been married about three years, and we were living in the area. We were living in a church that was provide or a house that was provided by the church as part of my compensation here, working at the church. And uh, we were excited because we were actually going to be moving from there. We were looking at purchasing our first home. There's just tons of excitement. And while maybe a lot of the church recognized and realized that we were we were moving, what a lot of the church didn't know is that at that time that Hope and I were actually pregnant. And we were really excited about that. And just for clarity, when I say that we were pregnant, um, Hope was pregnant. I, I was not. I mean, I, I, I am pregnant, like I'm food pregnant, like food baby pregnant, like, but that's been like 12 years that I've been food baby pregnant. But Hope was pregnant, but I helped. I'm not sure if that's inappropriate or not, but I, it's truth. So we were really excited in August of, of 2018 because not only were we at the place where we had find, found a house and we were looking to sell, uh, to settle and, and to kind of have a closing date, in the middle of our kind of searching for that, things changed for us as we found out, I think it was towards the beginning of June, that we were pregnant. Like our entire kind of world shifted right? Like what we did was instead of now just looking for a house that it's just Hope and I, what we began to do is think about, okay, this is the home that we're going to start a family in, that we're going to start to raise children. And there's so much excitement in that. And I remember that we got to the point where we were uh, like filling out, like uh, we were making offers. We put offers in two different houses. The first one didn't quite go well. And then we like wrote a letter and we kind of talked to to the potential buyers of just talking about the vision that we had of, of raising our family in their home and surprisingly like they took our offer which was 15,000 less than their asking price which in our market does not happen and we were just so incredibly excited for what was going to come we were so thrilled that God had blessed us the way that he had and it just seemed like he was putting things into place even the house that we didn't get it just seemed like God was leading us to where we ended up landing and so with so much excitement in August of 2018 we bought the house we moved in we were blessed with church and family members helping us move in and so excited and about a week after that move in was our first OB appointment and we went to it with so much excitement. We were so thrilled about what God was doing and what it looked like was going to happen. And I remember that day, it was a Wednesday in August of, of 2018, it was the 22nd. And I remember going into it with such excitement and such joy, and then feeling like the floor just simply dropped out from underneath us. It was at that doctor's appointment that we learned that we had had a miscarriage and as the doctor struggled to kind of put into words he, he kind of said that the numbers weren't right and I think what he knew was that the numbers were so bad that he had already realized that we had had a miscarriage but but he wanted to run some more tests and he was a little bit anxious to to be the one to break the news because how do you tell a family two people that are excited about seeing the first images of their unborn child, that they actually are not pregnant, but they've lost that child. And I remember being in that office, just being confused. I remember kind of at one point kind of slowing the doctor going, wait, 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 say that one more time. Like I, I didn't quite comprehend what he was saying and he was just I think he was a little bit nervous where I think he was talking fast, but I was also feeling like I was understanding very slowly, like, wait, what? And I remember leaving 
that meeting and leaving that doctor's appointment just simply devastated. Just feeling like, God, I don't understand. Like, this is, this is what you were doing. Like, it just seemed like you've paid the way. We bought a four-bedroom house for just hoping. It seems a little bit bizarre. Like, but it seemed like that's what you had for us. Like, even that seemed like it was a changing of what we had in mind, but it seemed like this is what God had provided, and we were confused. We were hurt. We were full of grief and difficulty, and and to be completely honest, I was a little bit surprised at the emotions that I felt because this idea of being a father was still very new to me. It was still very strange, this like, okay, well, what does that mean? There's pretty significant changes that'll be happening in my life. And then all of a sudden, as we experience this loss and as we start to grieve, man, there was such a heartache that I was even surprised by. Because this idea was still so brand new, but as soon as that idea was gone, now all of a sudden, all of this grief and I'll say anger and confusion sets in. And so when you're talking about Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always, I don't know how to rejoice in that moment. I don't know how to, in the loss of a dream for us in that moment, in that reality, I don't know how to rejoice in that because there's more confusion than anything. And while my scenario is one of many, and while it may not be in every single day occurrence, the reality is, is that we all face similar circumstances where life kind of impacts, where our world can become unhinged by a simple phone call. I grieve for those that during these nine weeks and during this COVID-19 have lost loved ones because how do you, how do you mourn and grieve for them? How do you celebrate their, their loved one's life in this time where you're not allowed to assemble, we're not supposed to assemble, There's so many challenges that are within our church, that are within our lives. There's so many different things that we experience that make us pause when we read Philippians 4.4 and go, I don't know how to rejoice in that moment. Like, God, I would love to, but I don't know how to do that. I don't understand. How does one rejoice in that moment? But that is exactly what Paul is challenging us to do, to rejoice in that moment. As out of the normal, those situations are for many of us. They're still a reality that we live in. So how do we rejoice in those moments? And Paul continues by telling us. I'm so glad that he continues in this and he tells us. It doesn't make it easy or simple, but he tells us. Just as Paul kind of surprised his readers by, by connecting this conflict with these two women with rejoicing, he now connects rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering, and intense difficulty with, verse 5, reasonableness. And this, is, this continues to get crazier. Philippians 4, 5, it says, Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Reasonableness, or some translations say this gentleness, and says the Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near. And again, man, if you're thinking about rejoicing always, and Paul is appealing to my reasonableness, When I'm walking out of the doctor's office, having my world just shattered, I don't know if anybody can appeal to my reasonableness because I don't feel like I'm very reasonable in that moment. I feel like my heart is is breaking inside of my chest, so I don't know how reasonableness fits into that. I don't feel like I have any. 
But this reasonableness or this gentleness is not built or predicted by our circumstances. It never is. And this is what Paul is talking Uh, The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. It says, Sometimes the trials and pressure of life make it almost impossible to be happy. But Paul did not tell his readers to be happy. He encouraged them to rejoice in the Lord. Christ is the one in whom the sphere of rejoicing was to take place. Surely there are many circumstances in which Christians cannot be happy, but they can always rejoice in the Lord and delight in him. Paul himself was an, ex- an excellent example of one who had inner joy when, ex- when uh, joy during external circumstances, such as persecution, imprisonment, and the threat of death were against him. The reason Paul is able to say rejoice in the Lord always, and the reasonable, reasonableness that he wants us to be known for is built on this next set of words. And I've already said it, but the next set of words are really the key to this entire passage. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Or the Lord is near. And this is the very key to this passage. Really, everything I feel like is built upon this simple phrase that is easy to kind of glance over and to skip over. And if you're a Christian and you're in the midst of a difficult situation, you go, yeah, 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 I know, I get it, that God is, God is near. And then you keep moving on. But when you truly pause and stop and think about the fact that the God of the universe is there in your brokenness, is in there when the floor gives out, is in there when your heart is broken, then you can find comfort and you can rejoice. It doesn't mean that you're happy. It doesn't mean that things are all okay. It doesn't mean that you don't feel this grief and this loss, but you can rejoice because the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Mature believers can rejoice in the Lord always and be reasonable in the middle of whatever situation they find themselves because the Lord is always near. God is not a far-off God that just sits at a distance and doesn't know your hurts and he doesn't know your struggles. He knows the very hairs that are on your head. He knows the very hurts that you experience and the difficulties and the challenge that you go through. He is right there with you. So in the midst of our pain in 2018, in the midst of our hearts breaking, God was there. He was the very foundation of the hope that we had. And I don't just say that because my wife's name is Hope, but I mean that he was our true hope in the middle of the worst circumstances that possibly either Hope or myself have ever experienced. In the midst of that grief, man, he was the only thing that we could cling to. He is a loving and nurturing father that wants to give good gifts to his children. And there was so much confusion, even in that sentence, in that statement of going, Lord, I don't understand. Why, why, would, you, why would you give us this pregnancy and then take it away? Like, even if he's not directly responsible, like, you allowed it to happen? Like, how, how does that make sense? There was confusion there. But his understanding and knowing that we could still find that God was a good God, that he was still there. And the key is knowing and understanding that the Lord is near. So for you today, as you're at home, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't know if for you, if this is a season where you're going, it's easy to rejoice, or maybe you're going, 
the word rejoice means nothing to me right now because my heart is broken. It's falling to pieces, but I want you to be encouraged knowing that the Lord is near. And that happiness may be hard to find right now, but joy can be found in the midst of those difficult situations. The Life Application Concise New Testament Commentary says, Paul's attitude teaches us an important lesson. Our inner attitudes do not have to reflect our outward circumstances. Paul was full of joy because he knew that no matter what happened to him, Jesus Christ was with him. While believers often will encounter situations in which they cannot be happy, they can always rejoice and delight in the Lord. That day that when Hope and I were leaving the doctor's office, while we were heartbroken and at a loss for understanding, we knew that beyond anything else that God was still sovereign and that he was in control and he was still a good father. And we didn't know what the future held. We didn't know anything in that moment. But what we knew was that God was good and he was still faithful. And, and I want to make it clear in this, as I'm talking about this, what I'm not saying is that we need to, to put on a stupid or a silly grin when difficult things are happening. That's not what I'm saying. That's not actual, a reasonable theology. That's pretty insane. Like, God is not glorified when in the midst of a horrific situation that we put on a grin and we pretend like everything's all right. There was still grief. There was still loss. There was still mourning. But in that, we knew that God was still good. We grieved. God is not glorified when you act happy about horrific things, but he's glorified when in your deepest pain you can find a way to say, I trust you, Lord. Help me because my heart is failing in my chest and all that we are and all that we have is yours. Would, you ex- would we accept your will over our own? In the midst of pain and stress and struggle, I want to be able to say, God, show me your will and I want to be willing to do whatever he calls me to do. And that, I think, is what Paul is talking about. Continuing on to verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. There's this extreme connection to 4 and 5 and verse 6, because if we can begin to do what he's saying, is if we can understand that the Lord is, is near, then all of a sudden we don't have to be anxious about things because if we're trusting in God, then that displaces this anxiety and this fear. Trust has a way of eradicating anxiety and fear because if we're really leaning into who Christ is and really trusting in him, then all of a sudden there's no room for trust and fear. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your, or let your requests be made known to God. So how do you handle adversity or anxiety? Remember that the Lord is near. near. And then the second thing is through prayer and supplication. We, we pretty much have a general good understanding of what prayer is. It's, it's going before God and talking to him, having a two-way communication. But what is supplication? Supplication is, is basically, or petition is what some translations say, but supplication is just this kind of quick, Lord, help me prayer. Uh, in fact, uh, I think I, I wrote this down if I can find it. It says, supplication is the action of asking or begging for something earnestly or humbly. So supplication prayer is just simply in the middle of when you don't have time to say these long prayers, it's just going, Lord, help me. 
That would be a prayer of supplication. So we, how do we combat anxiety? We combat it by understanding that the Lord is near and then through prayer and supplication, by praying to God, by speaking to him and then saying these quick, Lord, help me prayers, like pleading earnestly with him in humility. And then also the other key in this verse, it says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that's what I've kind of already mentioned is that when there's thanksgiving, thanksgiving can't coexist with this anxiety. Like when you're thankful for your situation, it has a way of displacing that anxiety. And so that's Paul's kind of remedy here. It's prescriptive in the sense that if you do these things, then what you will experience is ultimately God's peace. I'll let your requests be known to God. They should be accompanied by thanksgiving. And then Philippians 4, 7 says, and the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, prescriptive. If we aren't anxious in what we do, how we combat that is understanding that the Lord is near and that we, through prayer, through supplication, and through thanksgiving, if we can accomplish those things, then what happens is that then, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Going back to August of 2018, I think that this is what my wife and I experienced, this peace that passes all understanding. Yes, we were grieving. Yes, it was difficult. But in that, we knew that God was good. And we experienced this peace. And while it was probably the worst situation we've ever gone through, it was also, dare I say, it was one of the most amazing because we knew that God was near. I think that he was doing exactly what this verse said, that he was guarding our hearts and our mind. And again, the importance of this military town of Philippi, they would understand guarding. In fact, as I read through this, it's uh, one of the things that I said is that after the Roman conquest of the city, Rome released some of its veteran soldiers to colonize the city of Philippi. And it's possible that these soldiers were the Praetorian Guard. And the Praetorian Guard was an elite unit of imperial Roman army whose members served as personal bodyguards and intelligence for Roman emperors. During the era of the Roman Republic, the Praetorians served as a small escort force for high-ranking officials, for senators, uh, and for senators, uh, and also serving as bodyguards for high-ranking officers in the Roman legions. And then ultimately what happened was the first emperor uh, founded the guard as his personal security detail. So it's in, interesting that when he uses that word guard, it translates in the Greek, it translates a military term, which means to protect or to garrison by guarding, like soldiers assigned to watch over a certain area. God's peace does that in our lives if we can do what Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is saying. He guards against it. And then he continues on with this verse, and I've got to wrap up on time. Philippians 4, 8, 9 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the Lord of peace will be with you. What he's encouraging us to do is that many times you have to battle the thoughts in your mind with, with replacing them with other thoughts. It doesn't just work to go, I'm not going to think about that because then you tend to think about it more. 
And so what he's saying is that as you're in this place of anxiety or fear, then what you need to do is replace that thought of anxiety and fear with something that is good, that is admirable, that is lovely, that is, that is um, uh, true, that whatever is honorable. Don't focus on the dishonorable, but focus on the honorable things. And in doing so, you will begin to experience the guarding of your heart and your mind and this peace that passes all understanding. This is what encourages you and excites. Uh, and so the question becomes this. It says, we aren't just meant to park our minds on good ideas or virtues, but to set our minds on things that come from Christ, that exalt him and bring him glory. So what stirs your affection for Christ Jesus? What is it that encourages you and excites you in his purpose and his calling? Dwell on those things that stir up in you the desire to live for his glory. And Paul says in verse 9 to practice these things. I love that statement because it just doesn't come naturally. It isn't something that just happens without trying. This is something that you have to learn and practice and put into practice. Philippians 10, and I've got to wrap this up. Philippians 10 says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at length that I have received your concern for me. You uh, You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. What Paul is saying is saying, man, you're practicing all that I've said. You're putting it into to works. And then the last part of this says, Philippians 4, 11 through 14, not that I am speaking uh, of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. What Paul is saying in one of the most misrepresented scriptures, I think of all times, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. You see that at graduations, you see that in motivational posts and pictures, but that's not a picture of self-motivation, and I can do it, and God's going to help me do it. What Paul is saying is that he's learned to be content in Christ, whether well-fed or hungry. It doesn't matter. Paul has learned that in whatever circumstance he's in, he can be content in who Christ is, and because he's learned to be content in that, then he can experience and do all things through Christ. And that's what I would challenge us to today. If I had more time, we could expound more, but I think that we should probably wrap this up and move on to the next thing. It says, what, uh, what about us? Like when Paul says that you, you can be content regardless of your circumstances, he knows what he's talking about. But what about us? As we wrap up today, as we wrap up this series, how are you doing in the area of contentment? How quick is your impulse to find satisfaction in Christ, to go, uh, to go to the joy of the gospel in times of stress, frustration, and disappointment, and in trouble? And so I would pray that you would be fully content in Christ and that you would be able to experience that you can do all things through Christ. Why? Because you've become content in what he has for you. So at this time, I would just invite you to, to join us in this final song. In peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my love you
again, thank you so much for joining us this week. I really hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by this book in Philippians and that uh, as you continue in the season of life that you're in, that you would be really content in what God has for us and, and that you would strive for everything that he would have for us and you would find joy in the most difficult of circumstances. Um, I hope that everyone has a blessed week. If there's anything that we can do as a church, please don't hesitate to contact us. Info at clcfamily.church or call the office at 610-869-2140. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged and we love you and we will see you soon. Have a great week.